Galatians chapter 4 is the text from the Scripture for us this morning. We are back again this morning to our study through this tremendous book. So if you haven't really followed along up till now, maybe you're here for the first time or here uh, off and on, then uh, this is a good day to come because the beginning of chapter 4 really recaptures some of the things that uh, Paul has already written about in the chapters that are before. Now we've come in chapter 4, verse 1, to a verse that my children know by heart because I quote it to them so often. An heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave. So get to work. So they know that verse. Um, this passage is... Uh, coming in the middle of a letter in which Paul is writing about his great concern for the churches there in that ancient Roman province of Galatia. He'd established those churches. He'd led people to Christ. And now his real concern was that there were false teachers that were coming along to those churches and leading them astray from the gospel, purporting to preach the gospel, but really preaching to them another message altogether that undermined the gospel. And the big concern that uh, the false teachers had or the, the argument that they were putting forth had to do with who were the true people of God. And their answer was only Israel. That is, only those who are circumcised. Only those who observe the Jewish ceremonies and who keep the law of God, those are the people who are going to be justified in the sight of God. You obey and you will be justified if you are one of God's people. And Paul is writing this to correct this this false gospel. His statement of the Christian message is this, that no one is justified before God by the works of the law. In fact, the law demands personal, perfect, and perpetual obedience. And there's not a human being who has ever given that to God. No one is justified by the works of the law. God's true children, he argues, are those who have faith in Christ. What matters then is not whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, but being baptized by faith into Christ. And he goes back to even Abraham, right? He says, Abraham himself, how was he justified before God? He was not saved by obedience to the law, but he was saved by faith in the promise of God. And so beginning in in chapter 3, in the middle of the chapter, about verse 15, he begins to deal with the place of the law, then, in the plan of God, because the false teachers were making a really big deal about the law. If you're not a law keeper, then you will not be justified before God. That's the basis on which God will justify you. So Paul's saying, no, you're not justified on the basis of law keeping, but on the basis of Christ and his law-keeping. So what is the place of the law? Well, first Paul has argued that 
the law, the coming of the law, the giving of the Mosaic law, it didn't change the previously given promise that God had made to Abraham. God doesn't change. His salvation doesn't change. God had made a promise already that he would bless Abraham's offspring. The coming of the law doesn't change that, and it doesn't mean that people are now going to be saved by works rather than by faith. So what, are the, what is the purpose of those commands then? Why then the law? With all of its statements that teach that those who obey will be blessed and have life, and those who disobey will suffer the curse and die. Why the law? Why was it given? Why those stipulations? And the answer we discovered was that the the law does this, among other things, that the law, the giving of the law, actually narrowed and focused the promise that God had made to Abraham onto, it focused it, it narrowed it and focused it onto the one it was always meant to point to. That offspring of Abraham was, in fact, none other than the Lord Jesus Christ, who alone obeyed the law, who alone earned eternal life, and who alone suffered in a substitutionary way for his people the punishment of that law. He alone obeyed perfectly, personally, completely, Entirely, he was the offspring. He was the heir. So the purpose of the law then, far from giving cause to these people to boast in the flesh, we have Abraham as our father. It actually multiplied their transgressions in a way that should have caused them to run to Christ. The purpose of the law was temporary. It was a a legal guardian, Paul says, to keep Israel until they came of age. It was a guard to keep them under captivity until they would be set free by Christ and Christ alone. So in our text, Paul then is continuing to illustrate Israel's condition under the law. Chapter 4, verses 1 to 7 is our text. I mean, he says, that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. And when the full, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent his spirit, the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Now Paul starts off here with this illustration in verses 1 and 2. The illustration is of a son, an heir, 
a son who is going to be the inheritor of a great fortune, a great estate, but he's still a child. And as long as he's a child, in many ways, he's not much different from a slave. He might be called the young master, but the guardians appointed for his youth tell him when it's time to get up and what he should wear and where he should go and what he does while he's there and when he needs to come home and what time he needs to go to bed. His life is, you know, in many ways, just like a slave's. He's not yet fully free, even though he's the owner of everything, even though he's the inheritor, he's still under rulers, governors, under the jurisdiction of these guardians. This is someone who watches over a child under managers who are managing his property instead of his direct control. He's subject in this period of time to the discipline of those guardians if he disobeys. He's like a slave who's subject to the master when he is disobedient uh, for discipline. These were all temporary measures set in place, as Paul illustrates it, until whatever date that was designated by his father as the date when he would come to maturity, when he would come into his own and inherit his rightful inheritance. Um, Interpreters of this passage argue over what's the specific background. Is Paul alluding to uh, Greek uh, adoption or or inheritance laws or Roman laws, or maybe he's borrowing from Jewish history, Jewish culture. We don't know for sure, um, but we do know that these kinds of things, you know, the illustration stands on its own. These kinds of things have happened all throughout history. Um, in fact, as recently um, as 1999, there was an article that was uh talking about the Duke and Duchess of Northumberland in the UK, uh, who had gone to court to try to set up a guardianship trust for their eldest son. He was 14 at the time. He was the Earl, uh, George Percy, and he was due, according to the, uh, the previous arrangement, he was due to receive his inheritance all of it when he turned 18. And we're talking about a huge inheritance, a castle, a million pounds, and uh, about $400,000 a year in annual income when he turned 18. And uh, the parents, the Duke and Duchess, rightfully so, were a little concerned about an 18-year-old guy inheriting all of this wealth. They had watched um, other... people uh, of great means inherit uh, great sums of money and squander them on drugs and riotous living. And they were concerned uh, for their son. And so they set up a trust. And that trust was then to manage that young Earl's fortune until he turned 21. Something similar is, is, is the kind of thing that Paul has in mind, I think, when he's using this illustration. A young child who is the inheritor of everything, but until that time comes, he's kept in, all of that is kept in trust, he's kept under um, guardians and managers, and this is all uh, for, his, for the period of his youth, 
until the date set by his father. Now, you get to verses 3 to 5, and Paul's making now the application to the situation for the Christians in Galatia, and this begins to then help us to think about how we should um, make application of this illustration. Verse 3, he says, In the same way also, when we were children, we were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world, he says, until what he calls in verse 4, the fullness of time. He says, we also, like this illustration, we also were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. Now, in the context, Paul's referring to how until Christ came in history, Israel was like a child, and as a child was under the temporary guardianship of the law. If you look back in verse chapter 3, verse 23, he says that they were, quote, held captive until, uh, and they were imprisoned until the coming of Christ, until the coming of faith. And that seems to be then what Paul, at least part of what Paul has in mind here when he says that they were enslaved in their youth to the elementary principles of the world. The word elementary principles, that word there, the, the Greek word behind it, it just refers to the basics, the fundamentals, the elements. But the phrase itself, the word itself, um, stoicheia is the Greek word, is, is kind of hard to pin down. And that's why some of you with different translations may have different things here. Other translations have they were enslaved to the elemental things or to elemental forces or to elemental spiritual forces even. And the reason for the different translations and the uncertainty of exactly what Paul's talking about is that this word can have three different connotations depending on the context it's used in. And just sort of follow with me for a minute and then this will all come and sort of fit back into the text. What are the elemental principles that he's referring to here? Well, I said, in the first case, um, it can refer to the basic or elementary teachings of a matter, the basic principles of some subject matter. Um, it's used this way, for example, in Hebrews chapter 5, if you want to make a cross-reference. Hebrews 5 is this usage, and Paul is talking about the elements of our Christian faith and comparing it to milk, taking in milk rather than solid food. Um, so it's the basics, the, the, the beginning, the, 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 uh, the elementary, the foundation. And this is almost, I think, certainly what part of what Paul has in view here. He's, he's saying that the church under the Mosaic law, Israel, was in its infancy. It was under the temporary guardianship of the law. It was like, it was like this was the church in elementary school. Can I use that kind of terminology? It was, it was the church in elementary school. They were learning the basic principles of God, the ABCs of the Christian religion, if you were, or I guess the Olive Bath Gimels of the, of the Christian world for the Hebrews. What do you do when you teach small children? What do you use? You use a lot of illustrations, right? You use a lot of pictures. You say, look, A is for apple, apple, right? You're using pictures and you're pointing them 
to these things so that they can learn at their level. And that's, of course, exactly what the Lord did with his people in the old, under the Old Covenant, is he taught them with types and shadows, with pictures, symbols that pointed them forward to a greater reality. The circumcision of those physically descended from Abraham pointed forward to the spiritual birth through faith in Christ that would characterize God's true people. And until the Israel's coming of age in the fullness of time, the heir of all things was still a child. He was enslaved to the ABCs, as it were, of the Christian faith. So I think that's at least part of what Paul's getting at here. He says we were enslaved in that period of Israel's history until the coming of Christ, enslaved under these elementary things. That was where they were locked in. Now, there's another connotation to this word and that's used in the Scripture as well as elsewhere. And it can refer to the basic elements that make up the cosmos. Um, that's the way it's used, if you want to make a cross-reference for that one, in 2 Peter 2. Peter uses it that way when he talks about the elements of the heavens, the sun, the moon, the stars, and that sort of thing, the heavenly bodies, the ESV translates it, being burned up. Okay? So you can, it can be a reference to the, to the basic elements of the, of the universe, the, the elements of the cosmos. This is the, the way the ancients, uh, viewed the world, made up of, of basic building blocks, right? Like earth and wind and fire and water. Thirdly, and in fact, somewhat related to that is, is a third connotation of this word, also used in the scripture, of, get this, of spiritual forces that are associated with those various cosmic elements, spiritual beings, spiritual forces. And that sounds, I guess, foreign to our modern Western ears, but this is a reference to the reverence that people had for the spiritual forces that stood behind the natural forces. Now, in the Bible, in in a biblical scheme of things, there is only one God, amen? One God who is the creator. He's the creator of all things. And he is not only the creator of all of the elements of the cosmos, but he is the ruler over all of them as well. So Psalm 104 says that the winds are God's servants and the fire his messenger. The winds are his messengers, the fire his servants. And Hebrews 2 acknowledges that there are sometimes angels behind the movements of the winds and angelic ministers in the fire. The Lord sends his angels to watch over his people and they stand behind even the things that happen to them in this world. Nevertheless, of course, Satan also sends his spirits into the world as well. And men and women offer, when they offer their worship to the creation rather than to the creator, you can be sure that a demonic spirit will be there to accept their praise. So there are elemental spirits behind all of the ungodliness and the idolatry of this world. And that's, I think, the way that the term is used in Colossians chapter 2. If you want a third parallel, Colossians chapter 2, when it's translated in the ESV as elemental spirits behind, and in fact, in this case, 
Colossians says that there are elemental spirits behind ungodly worldly philosophies, ideologies. And let me just stop there for a minute and remind us, friends, that demons are not just relegated to the jungles, um, not just associated with carved images set up on mantles. They are alive and well behind urbane, worldly philosophies. And this is why some anti-God ideologies seem to have a life of their own, a kind of vigor and animation and influence that is superhuman almost. Say, how is this such a powerful ideology and philosophy in this culture? It is so anti-God. And the answer is there, there are spiritual realities behind that. But I want to remind you just as quickly that greater is he that is in you than is he that is in the world. The weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy spiritual strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. These These second and third connotations um, that refer to the spiritual forces that are behind the forces of the cosmos, these seem to be what's in view here in chapter 4, verse 8. Drop down just a few verses, and it's almost like Paul has that in mind here. Verse 8, he says, Formerly, when you did not know God you were enslaved to those who by nature are not gods, so they're worshiping false gods, really worshiping demons. He says, how can you turn back again, verse 9, the end of verse 9, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles or spirits of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? So I I think here... It almost seems like he's not talking about going back to the law, although he he certainly is talking about that in the in the overall context, but now he's he's sort of playing on the word and its dual connotations to to speak not only to the Jews and their um, temptations to go back into slavery of their own, but to Gentiles as well, who are tempted to to fall back under the slavery of their paganism. He is speaking to both. And in other words, in other words, I think Paul is still viewing Israel's history as being reflected in a universal experience of salvation. This is what I was talking about a couple of weeks ago. So before Christ, whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, you were enslaved under sin either in bondage to a law that only revealed your sinfulness or in bondage to demonic gods of idolatry and worldly philosophy. And friend, make no mistake, that is exactly where every person is who is without Christ. They're in bondage. Some of you, maybe this morning, 
When I say that a person outside of Christ is in bondage, maybe you say, yeah, I know. I know. I feel that. I just want to be set free. And I want to tell you that this morning, this is a message of hope for you. Of hope of freedom and sonship. Of a reception of you by a holy God that has nothing to do with your own performance, but with the grace of God manifest in the person of His Son. But I know that sometimes I say these kinds of words to somebody who responds, Pastor, you say I'm in bondage. I'm not. I am free. I'm doing exactly what I want to do. And I just want to say that a person like that is actually, you are being carried along by, a, by the spirit of this age. Swept along, powerless, in the tide of the prevailing culture, all the while convincing yourself that you are in control. You're, you have your own mind. But I want to tell you that the Scripture teaches that there is an evil spirit that is governing the flow of the course of this world. He is energizing the children of disobedience. They are pawns in his hand. And he, listen to this, he is most successful at keeping men in bondage when they think that they're free, when they think they're autonomous. And I just want to plead with you that you would open your eyes you would confess your sin and yield to the Lord Jesus Christ because that yielding to Him, becoming a servant of Christ is the only way to be free, really. Without Christ, all the world lies in bondage. But all of history changes with the coming of Christ's Son into the world. Israel's history changes and our own history changes. Verse 4, But when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. Of course, the whole question in this book is, who are God's sons? Who are the sons of Abraham? Who are the sons of God? Who are the inheritors of the promise? In times past... Paul says, we were all all of us slaves to sin. So what makes the difference? And the answer is the coming of God's, what? The coming of His Son. The coming of His only Son. His monogenes Son. His one-of-a-kind Son. His one and only Son came into the world, and now through union with that one and only Son, God gives to us the spirit of adoption that He may bring many sons into glory. Not sons by nature, but sons by grace. Sons of adoption. And I want to quickly point out five important elements with regard to the coming of God's Son into history. I'm borrowing this outline because it really perfectly reflects the text that's here. I want you to notice, first of all, the timing of the Son's coming. Look at the text. Verse 4, When the fullness of time had come. In other words, everything that had led up to this point, everything before this moment was incomplete. 
All of the Old Testament revelation was merely pictures and ABCs. All of the commands, all of the ceremonies, all of the prophecy, all the history was all building up to the climax of all human history when Christ Jesus would come into the world. When he came into the world, the prophet said that the time is at hand, the kingdom of heaven is here. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1 says, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to the fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed as the heir of all things. You see all of this language that Paul is using here. God sent His Son, it is His Son and heir, through whom also He created the world. Verse 3, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of God's nature. Jesus Christ, God's Son, the exact imprint of His nature, came into this world at the fullness of time. This is, this is the time appointed by the Father in the illustration that Paul gave when the heir is now freed from being under managers and guardians, only uh, people under types and shadows. And now when the son finally comes into his own, there is a great advancement in salvation history. There is a turning of, of a new page. There is a fulfillment of what was only before prophesied. The old covenant community up to this point was manifested in infancy by types and shadows, but with the coming of His Son, they came into their own as the true children of God in the fullness of times. Notice, secondly, the origin of Christ's coming, the origin of the coming of the Son. It says that God sent forth His Son. God sent forth, so here's the Son, God sends him forth into the world, which implies that the Son was in existence before he was born into humanity. This is a reference to the eternal divine nature of Jesus Christ. His pre-existence, his eternal sonship, his eternal generation from God the Father. The Son's being begotten is no reference to His origin in time or when He finally achieves the status that He is now the Son of God. Rather, it speaks of His eternal relationship with the first person of the Godhead. Here was the Son in existence with the Father from all eternity and yet sent forth now in the fullness of of time. It says something, I think, important about who the Son of God is. And then thirdly, note, take note of the manner of His coming. He was born of a woman. Born of a woman. If being sent into the world testifies of His deity and of His pre-existence, of His equality with God, then being born testifies of His humanity. That's right. Born of a woman is tantamount to saying human in biblical terminology. 
And take note that the Father did not send His Son into a man. He sent His Son as a man, born of a woman. Here is then one person in two natures, divine and human, fully God so that He might provide salvation, for salvation is of the Lord, and fully man, that he might truly stand in the place of men, for he is not ashamed to call them brothers, right? Here is the Son of God, eternally existing with God, sent into the world, and yet now born of a woman, a man in every way, yet without sin. Notice, fourthly, the condition of his coming. He was born under the law. He was born under the law. Jesus Christ, when He came into the world, the the Son of God kept that whole law for His people. He did everything that the law required. Perfect, entire, and exact obedience offered up to God the Father under that law. And then, moreover, He suffered and died under the curse of the law. Not cursed for His own law-breaking, for His own covenant-breaking, but rather for the sin of His people. So we read that cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. And there He suffered and He died under the condemnation of God for our law-keeping on behalf of our sin, for our rebellion and our disobedience. He was born under the law. And then finally notice the purpose of His coming in the end of verse 4, to redeem those who were under the law so that they might receive adoption as sons. Christ's purpose was to redeem, to buy out of slavery by the payment of a price. This is what Christ did at the cost of His own life. He redeemed those who were under sin's curse and He set them free from sin's uh, mastery, from the law, from its guardianship, from its jurisdiction. And while the Jews were, of course, under the Mosaic law as a whole, all men, all of us, are under the eternal moral law of God. Romans chapter 2, even the law of God is written on the hearts of humanity. The eternal moral law. And He has set us free from the condemnation of that law. He kept the law and He suffered under its judgment. Christ delivers us out from under the slavery of the law. And there's a further purpose here. In order that we might receive what? What does it say in the end of the verse? He redeemed us from the curse of the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Christ did more than merely setting us free from the law. He did more than say, okay, I got you out of your jam, now you're on your own. No, He set us free from the prison house of sin and He brought us into the Father's house to be children of His own Father, beloved family of God. We are not slaves, friends, who have to earn our keep, who have to prove our worth to the Master. We are the children unconditionally loved by the Father. 
And that brings us to the conclusion in verses 6 and 7. Here, I think Paul's doing a couple of things. He, first of all, reminds us of the confirmation of our sonship. Verse 6, because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Here you have the entire Trinity at work to bring about salvation, right? The Father sends the Son who obeys the law, suffers on our behalf, and then sends the Spirit of His Son into our hearts that makes us children of God, confirms our relationship with God by moving us in our hearts to cry out to God as our Father. The Spirit bears witness in our spirits that we are the children of God. Not just that you know, we say Father with our lips. Of course, anybody can mouth the word. Even come to church and sit in a pew and say, Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. The word cry out here, he causes us to cry out. This is a word of of intensity, a word of feeling, a word of passion. In other words, this is a cry of faith. This is not just merely mouthing words. This is a cry that says, Oh, Father, oh, Father, help. Oh, Father, save me for the sake of Jesus Christ. Make me one of your children. But then not only is there a confirmation of the sonship, that we have in Christ by the gift of the Spirit, but there is the implication he draws out of what our sonship entails. Look at verse 7. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if you're a son, then you're a what? Then you're an heir. This is really going back to to the illustration that he started with, with the promise to Abraham that his offspring would be the heir, would be the inheritor of all of the blessings. Who's the heir? Well, we saw him argue already. It's Jesus. Christ alone is the sole inheritor. But now he says that through Christ, we all become children of God. And if children, then we are heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Christ is our all. All of our inheritance is in Him, through Him. Not because of ourselves, not in any sense of our own performance. And really, friends, this is where this whole sermon comes down, right? That that our relationship with God is all wrapped up in Jesus Christ. It is not by being good servants, being good slaves that obey God enough to prove our usefulness to Him that He brings us into heaven. It is by confessing that we are unprofitable servants and casting ourselves upon the Son of God as the only heir, putting our faith and trust in Him that unites us with Him so that we are then forgiven of sins and rightly related to God. And of course, the danger for all of us in our thinking is that we tend at times to fall back into kind of a spirit of slavery. A kind of sense that I've got to earn my keep. That I've got to impress God that I serve God out of mere obedience, that I obey Him simply out of fear or out of duty, like a slave obeying his master. Salvation somehow depends on my performance. A slave, of course, has to earn his keep, but a son is secure 
in His place in the family. And it's a wonderful thing. It's a saving thing. It is your salvation when you come to a point where you say that your hope is not that you can be a good servant and be found acceptable to God, but rather that you are in God's Son. That your hope is in His Son. And that with His Spirit in you, you begin to serve Him from your heart as a son who is made right with Him, not to impress Him, not to keep your place in the family, but because you love Him, because you're thankful, because you're amazed at all of His kindness in adopting you. You know the name John and Charles Wesley? We sing some hymns by Charles Wesley. His brother John, before he was converted, worked tirelessly in the name of religion. He was very zealous to earn favor with God. And during his his college days at Oxford, he established a group there that they called the Holy Club. (laughs) Talk about being holier than thou, right? This is the Holy Club. But they they were very zealous to want to do religious works. They gathered together... Um, to to study, to pray, and to do good deeds. They went into the prisons. They went into the workhouses to do evangelism. They provided food and clothing and education for poor children in the city. They even traveled um, to America to evangelize the um, Native Americans. In fact, Wesley wrote um, in his journal... Reflecting on that, he said, I went to America to convert the heathen, but oh, who would convert me? He went as a man who was zealous, who was religious, who served God like a slave, but yet he did not know that he was in Christ as a child of God. For all of his zealous labors, he lacked a rest upon the finished work of Christ alone. As he would later put it, he lacked, quote, a trust in Christ only for salvation. And looking back on all of his pre-conversion labors, he said this, I had even then the faith of a servant, but not that of a son. And I pray that we would be sons of God through faith in Christ alone. Let me close with more of Wesley's words, his personal testimony. Mimicking the Apostle Paul, he said, Are they read in philosophy? So was I. In ancient and modern tongues? So was I. Are they versed in the science of divinity? I too have studied it many years. Can they talk fluently upon spiritual things? The very same could I do. Are they plenteous in alms, in charity? Behold, I I gave all my goods to feed the poor. Do they give of their labors as well as of their substance? I have labored more abundantly than they all. Are they willing to suffer for their brethren? I have thrown up my friends, reputation, ease, and country. I have put my life in my hand, wandering into strange lands. I have given my body to be devoured by the deep, parched up with heat, consumed by toils and weariness, or whatsoever God should please to bring upon me. 
But does all this make me more acceptable to God? Do I ever do all I can? Do I ever do all I ever did or know, say, give, do, or suffer justify me in all of this? Make me acceptable to God? Or that I am as touching outward moral righteousness blameless? Or the having of a rational conviction of all the truths of Christianity? Does all this give me a claim to the holy, heavenly, divine character of a Christian? By no means. These things, though when emboldened by faith in Christ, are holy and just and good, yet without it are dung and dross, meat only to be purged away by the fire that shall not be quenched. This then I have learned, that my own works, my own sufferings, my own righteousness are so far from reconciling me to an offended God, so far from making any atonement for those the least of these sins, which are more in number than all the hairs of my head, that I have no hope but that of being justified freely through the redemption that is in Jesus. I have no hope but that if I seek, I shall find Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes through the law, but that which comes through faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith. If it be said that I have faith, for many such things have I heard from many miserable comforters, I answer, so have the devils a sort of faith, but they are all strangers to the covenants of promise. I want that faith which St. Paul recommends to all the world. For whosoever hath it is freed from sin. He is freed from fear, having peace with God through Christ, and rejoicing in hope and the glory of God. And he is freed from doubt, having the love of God shed abroad in his heart through the Holy Spirit which has been given to him which spirit itself beareth witness with his spirit that he is a child of God. And in the mercies of God, Wesley finally came to that kind of rest on Christ alone, that kind of assurance in his heart by the gift of the Holy Spirit that he was, in fact, a child of God. That's what I pray, that kind of assurance that you may have that, that you may know that you are a child of God, of the true and living God by faith in His Son, the only Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Heavenly Father, I pray that now You would take this Word, cause it to bear fruit in the lives of those who hear, and I ask You humbly in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.